Genesis 41 and verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offences today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain and the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he'd shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they'd eaten them, no one would have known that they'd eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is I, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. 
Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a, find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people. Uh, all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphenath Panea. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let's pray. Our Father God, you've given us... Uh, your holy word, the holy scriptures, uh, in order that we might learn great things uh, about you, uh, your son, uh, and your spirit. And so we pray uh, this morning uh, that by the power of that spirit, uh, we might see wonderful things in your word, and that we might embrace and hold fast uh, to the great promises you make within it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been a while since we've been uh, in the story of Joseph. Uh, and there's a danger, I guess, with these long stories you get in the Old Testament that we can get a little bit disorientated. 
Uh, so I just want to put, 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 the, put the, sort of the scenery in place, if you like, uh, for the setting of this morning's story. You remember that Joseph was, was his father's favourite son. It wasn't Joseph's fault that Jacob favoured him, but Jacob did. Amongst the 12 brothers, Joseph was the favourite. And children, what did Jacob give Joseph to show that he was a favourite son? Do you remember? Anyone remember what, what, did, what did Jacob give Joseph to show that he was a favourite son? Yep. Brilliant. Yeah, a robe, a great robe of many colours to show that he was the favourite one. Now the robe's going to come up later in our story, okay, so keep your eyes on the robe. So Joseph was the favourite son, the brothers hated it. You remember they beat him up, they threw him in a pit. And again, the pit will come up in our story. They eventually sold him into slavery and he was taken down to Egypt. And actually in Egypt he did okay. Uh, He was uh, bought by a senior official, Potiphar. And in Potiphar's household, Joseph rose up the ranks until he was second in command to Potiphar. In fact, very like our story today where Pharaoh ended up saying, you are below just me in the kingdom. Everyone is below you apart from me. Well, Potiphar said the same thing. Everything was under Joseph's command uh, within Potiphar's household. But Potiphar's wife uh, tried to seduce Joseph. He resisted. She grabbed the robe, tore a robe from him. And accused him of trying to attack us. He was thrown into jail. And the last story we looked at, it was probably two or three weeks ago now, uh, was when Joseph was in jail. And these two men came to him, the butler and the baker, who were Pharaoh's high officials. They each had a dream. Joseph interpreted them. For the baker, not so good news. He was killed. The butler was, well, he was released and sent back to work for Pharaoh. And as our story begins, we're two whole years later. Do you see that verse one? Two whole years later. And although Joseph had asked the butler to remember him before Pharaoh, had asked the butler to basically get him out of prison, the butler had obviously forgotten. And so here we are, Joseph still in the pit, as he calls it. It's interesting, very rarely does Joseph uh, describe his imprisonment as being in prison. It's often the pit. And I think that's meant to remind us of the time he was thrown in that literal pit by his brothers. Joseph sees his life in cycles. He gets up and then he's thrown down again into the pit and then he's raised up again by God. Uh, fully and finally here in this story. And I think our passage today is a long one, is it? A long story, but really it's telling us three, I think, three main things about God's ruler. When we read the Old Testament stories, they do two things for us. Uh, often they, they show us sort of principles about how we're meant to live, particularly in, in someone like Joseph's case. He's a faithful man. He's a good man. And so we, we can look at him and see that there are examples to follow there. But, but Joseph is also a special character in God's story. He's not just like you and me and therefore more significantly than just what lessons can we learn by trying to act a bit like Joseph. I think we're meant to see how does Joseph point us forward to to an even better version of himself if you like. So Joseph ends up as a ruler here doesn't he? By the end of the story Joseph is the ruler over all of Egypt. He's been raised out of the pit and lifted up to the right hand of, of the emperor. He's a picture therefore of Christ ultimately. Remember, Jesus himself said that all the scriptures are about him. So so what I want to see is how, in three different ways, that the description of Joseph uh, teaches us about the the man that God wants to rule. The man that God wants to rule. And ultimately, that's going to be Christ. So this man who God wants to rule, what does he do? Well, first of all, in verses 1 all the way through to 32, 
He reveals God's plans. He reveals God's plans. As I say, we're two years later. Poor old Joseph has been in jail now for uh, 13 years. Or rather, it's 13 years since he was thrown in the pit. He had a little bit of time in Potiphar's household. But more or less, he's been in the pit for 13 years. And Pharaoh gets these dreams. And they're strange, aren't they? Uh, First of all, the cows, the fat cows, come out of the Nile, seven of them. The Nile's the river, children, in Egypt, that makes all the crops grow. Because every year, the Nile would flood, and the banks would burst, and the water would go out all over the fields, and so the crops would grow. And seven cows come up out of the, the, uh, the river. But then seven thin, ugly cows, verse 4, come up after them. And the thin cows eat the fat cows. Now, normally, if a thin person, no, not a person, that's not good, is it? Uh, Let me try that again. Let's say a thin lion ate a fat lion. What would happen to the thin lion? Yeah, Isaac. It would get fatter, that's right. When a thin animal eats a fat animal, do you ever see a snake eating like a, you know, there's things of a snake eating like a, a mouse or something like that, and then the ma- you see the bump in the snake, don't you? When a thin animal eats a fat animal, the thin animal gets fatter, but not in this case. In this case, the seven thin cows ate the seven fat cows, and they stayed thin. And then Joseph, sorry, Pharaoh gets the same dream again, but with different things, not, not cows this time, but corn. Uh, seven ears of corn, and they're fat, they're plump, they're good. And what happens? Well, seven thin ones. So seven seven stalks of corn grow up. Beautiful, like they're going to make lovely loaves of bread. But then seven really measly tiny ones grow up. And the measly thin ones, grains of corn, eat up the fat ones. Funny, isn't it? Corn doesn't normally eat things, but in a very dream, they do. And again, the thin ones don't get fatter. They stay thin. And this dream baffles the magicians. You see that in verse 8? I think it's one of the sort of crisis points of the text. Verse 8, in the morning, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled that the Egyptians thought that dreams meant things. Now, it's worth saying here that not all your dreams mean things. Um, I was saying to, to one, I won't say who, but I, was, I had a dream about one of you. I texted him in the week. A dream about one of you this week. He knows who he is. Um, that he was trying to explain the Trinity to me using three different types of crisps, uh, quavers, hula hoops, and I can't remember what the other one was. I did not wake up in the morning and think, what is the significance of that dream? I just thought, I've had a weird, weird dream. Um, <laughs> and I am sure that, that Colin doesn't think you can explain the Trinity uh, using different types of crisps. Okay, so don't think that all your dreams have meanings. Okay, that would be a real mistake. We mustn't think all our dreams have meanings. But in this case, this is a dream sent by God, and it does have a meaning. But the magicians in verse 8 can't work it out. Now, the magicians aren't, this is not Paul Daniels or David Copperfield or David Blaine. These aren't people who do tricks. Uh, in, in Pharaoh's court, there'll be people who are, they're like the wise men, really, in uh, the time of Daniel or even the ones who come to Jesus. That they're wise men who are meant to be able to interpret dreams. And let Pharaoh know what the gods are doing. Pharaoh, of course, isn't a believer in the true God. But they're helpless. No one could interpret it. No one knew what was going on. And then the butler finally remembers. You see in verse 9, the chief cupbearer, the one who holds the wine for the king. I remember, he says, I remember my offences. Probably his offences against Pharaoh, but possibly too his offence, you know, his sin in not remembering Joseph. And he tells Pharaoh the story. This man did interpret our dreams and he got them right. And so suddenly, quick as a flash, verse 14, Joseph's whole life changes. We've had 
chapters and chapters of going downhill, down into the pit, into the pit. And in just one verse, everything changes. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly brought him out of the pit. And he, he was shaved and changed his clothes and brought him before Pharaoh. In the space of one verse, he goes from the bottom of the pit to this new man, shaved, cleansed, put a robe on him, and he's before Pharaoh. And you think this was Joseph's big moment, okay? that finally I've made it, I'm vindicated. Here we go, it's my time. He's had those dreams, remember, right back at the beginning of the story, where God told him he would be raised up, and the brothers, his family would bow down before him. And ultimately the sun, moon, and stars would bow down before him. And you'd think Joseph could be forgiven, therefore, for thinking, right, now people are going to see my ability, my talent, how great I am. But just look how the conversation goes. In verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream and I hear that you can interpret it. Now, wouldn't Joseph be forgiven for saying, that's right, O Pharaoh? Even if in his mind he's thinking, I know ultimately it's God who gives interpretation. You could perhaps forgive him for saying, yes, that is, I, I am kind of good at that. I've got several of them right so far. But no, look at his words, verse 16. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. It is not in me. God will give a favourable answer. It's actually the same thing he said uh, to the cupbearer, the butler and the baker in the chapter before, when they said, look, we've got dreams, we're troubled, we don't understand. In verse 8 of chapter 40, Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. It is God who understands. <laughs> God understands the plans he has for the world. And therefore, when he sends dreams that, that reveal those plans, it is God who can interpret the dream. Because ultimately, it's God who's in charge of history. I think we see two things here in this ruler that God has appointed. Uh, first of all, his humility. Like I, I think I said a moment ago, it's, it's 13 years since Joseph was thrown in the pit. He was 17 when his brothers beat him up and sold him into slavery. And now we're told later in the passage that he's 30. So 13 years. He's been basically insignificant, waiting off stage, as far as the world would see. I mean, we're following his story in the Bible, but as far as the world would see, he's just a Hebrew slave in a jail. Insignificant, irrelevant. And yet he comes out and humbly acknowledges God's hand in all that's happened, that it is God ultimately who gives him all his gifts. He is, in that sense, a humble ruler. Flow forward, what do we see? Who is the man that God has appointed, not just to run Egypt for a number of years, but to run the entire universe? Well, a servant king. Uh, Jesus, whose public ministry began, Luke tells us, age 30. Do you think 30 years of Jesus' life? So nobody, as far as the world were concerned. Presumably, I mean, we're not told exactly, but presumably a, a carpenter taking up his father's trade. Not in any position of importance, not in a city of any great importance, but the son of God humbly biding his time until he's called by his father to, to exercise that public ministry that we read about in the Gospels. 
even before we get to the humility that, that drove him to the cross, to stoop down and become man, to give his life for us, it's just reflecting on the fact that for 30 years he lived in anonymity. That should surely puncture at our pride. Uh, we're so quick to look for glory, aren't we? We want to be recognised for our abilities, our talents. And yet we serve a master who's described as the servant of all. How inappropriate would it us be for us, who serve the servant, to start, well, swanning around, being pleased with ourselves? Do you remember the letters of the Corinthians? Paul writes to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians as a church seem pretty pleased with themselves, that they're quite gifted in one sense. There seems to be a lot of spectacular things going on. They can speak in tongues, they can prophesy, there's healings, all sorts of things. And Paul writes to them and says, what do you have that you did not receive? So why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's 1 Corinthians 4, if you're interested. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you and I have, whether, if you like, there are sort of natural gifts, our intelligence or our good looks, okay, or our success in our career, or whether they're the more spiritual side, you might say, our understanding of scripture, any growth in holiness, all of it is a gift, and yet so quickly we become proud. We might say to ourselves, well, I'm not particularly proud. I don't go, you know, sorting around, looking down my nose at other people. But how quickly are we, how quick are we rather, to, to get upset and offended when people don't notice the things that we do? No one thanked me for tidying up yet again after church. At home, no one ever notices everything that I do. My husband, my wife, my kids... No thanks, no gratitude. Why are they not recognising my service? It's just pride again, isn't it? I want to be seen. I want people to recognise what I do. Maybe at work, I've slogged away. I've put in the hours. It's brought hundreds, thousands of pounds in for the company. No thanks. I've slogged away in the hospital, working beyond my hours. No thanks. And we get angry and fed up and resentful and bitter. What do you have that you do not receive? God's ruler is a humble ruler. And so we as his people ought to be in that image. And, and he's humble, particularly in his dependence on God's word. You see that in Joseph? He understands that it's not that he has just the gift of interpretation. Rather, God gives the interpretation. He is dependent on God for all his understanding. Astounding, that's also true of Jesus, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is God, so he, as God, he knows all things. Okay? He doesn't need to depend on anyone, he's God. But he's also a real man like you or me, a real man, just without sin. And so as a man, even Jesus has to depend on the, the word of God. So let me read you from Isaiah 50. Okay, this is a prophecy of Jesus. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. See the description of Jesus? Jesus with a word can sustain those who are weary. Think of Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. But, but listen how Isaiah 50 goes on. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. Isaiah 50, verse 4 onwards. Do you hear what's going on there? Jesus is speaking. Jesus is saying, the Lord God has opened my ear to hear. He is being taught 
by God the Father. So as much as he's a man, truly a man, he too has to learn. He depends on God's word. And that's why in John's gospel, when he comes and preaches, he can say, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. What Jesus says is what the father tells him to say. Again, according to his human nature. He is a man dependent on God's word and who can only preach and minister and teach because of what the father has taught him. Even he as a true man, is dependent on God's word and dependent on God to to reveal that word to him. So again, let me ask, when you come to your own, when you come to the Bible yourself, whether it's in church and the Bible's been preached or taught, uh, whether perhaps you're reading it yourself, you're teaching it to your children at home, perhaps you're leading a midweek group or, or teaching the Sunday school, Where's your dependence? Is it on the skills that you were taught at university, perhaps, about how to lead a Bible study? You know, how to look at the, a passage and analyse it? Is it on the number of books you've read that help get you theologically kind of attuned rightly? Uh, is it on your, your, just your knowledge of the Bible, how the whole thing fits together? Ultimately, is your reliance on yourself and your skills or primarily on the Lord to reveal? Now, it's not that those skills are wrong, okay? We're meant to learn how to read the Bible and think, and of course we are. But as Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul's just written to Timothy, a bunch of pictures, you know, you've got to serve like a soldier, an athlete. Think over what I say. Use your brain, Timothy. Don't be passive. Don't just sit there and expect this message to drop out of heaven. Think, but it's the Lord who gives you insights. Bible, both Bible teaching, but also Bible receiving, is a spiritual thing above all. And the ultimate uh, revealer of our hearts, I think, is our prayer life. Here's the prayer before the sermon, one that you just sit through because it's just what happens. Or when we pray before, pray before Bible study, it's just a little ritual. No, we're utterly dependent on the Spirit to reveal truth to us. Only God knows the truth. Only God can reveal the truth. We see that in Joseph, we see it even in Christ. So how much more in ourselves? So the ruler, ruler, rather, who reveals God's plan. Secondly, the ruler who rules. Very simply, the ruler who rules. Verses 33 through to 45. Do you see that Joseph doesn't just give the interpretation. He does do that. He explains that the seven thin cows are seven years of famine and the fat cows are years of plenty. he, 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 He explains what's going to happen to Pharaoh. But that's not the end. That's not the end. From verse 33 onwards, he changes. He's no longer explaining the dreams. He's giving Pharaoh advice about what to do in light of them. So verse 33, Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph goes on to say, they take in a fifth of the harvest, store it up. None of that was in the dream. See that? The dream was just about the fact there was going to be a a bumper seven years and then a terrible seven years. None of the stuff about having a ruler or storehouses or collecting it, none of that was in the dream. This is Joseph wisely responding to God's revelation. It's not in the text, it's not in the dream. He just sees what, what God has said he's going to do. And therefore, because as Pharaoh says, he has a spirit within him, the spirit of God. Verse 38. 
he wisely reacts. Just look at verse 39. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Or the verse before, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? The spirit is in Joseph. Even Pharaoh recognizes that. And the spirit has made him wise to know how to live in light of God's plan for Egypt. And so he's raised up. Verse 41 through 43, he's given a ring, Pharaoh's ring. He's allowed to ride in the sort of second best chariot. He's got, Pharaoh's got the Ferrari, but Joseph's in the Porsche. And perhaps most strikingly, he's got the robe again. Uh, They clothe him in garments of fine linen. The robe is back around him. He was stripped by his brothers and he was thrown into the pit. He clambered back up again and was made second in charge of Potiphar's household. And again, he was robed. And then Potiphar's wife stripped the robe from him as he fled from her, do you remember? And he was thrown back into the pit. And now as he's raised up even higher this time to the right hand of Pharaoh, Pharaoh robes him again. And they bow down before him. As he rides out in his chariot, verse 43, someone shouts out, bow down, bow down. You see a bit of a fulfillment of his dreams is beginning to come true. The brothers aren't there yet. The family aren't there yet. But the Egyptians are bowing down before him. Age 30, uh, he's finally at the right hand of the emperor. Just on that, by the way, it's interesting that Joseph is given power, authority, age 30. David takes the throne, age 30. Priests in the Old Testament weren't allowed to start ministry in the tabernacle until they were 30. And of course, Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us, began age 30. Um, There's no binding rule on this, so don't mishear me, but it, it makes sense, I think, more or less, that that authority in the, the church isn't given to those who are below that kind of age. Okay, rough, ready. Um, but there's a reason why the, the, uh, the church leaders in the New Testament, they're not called leaders, they're called elders. Now, it doesn't just mean you pick the five oldest people in church, whatever that might be, but, but there is some significance to the word. 30 does seem to be the age of kind of maturity uh, in the Bible. Anyway, that's by the by. Uh, Joseph is at the right hand of Pharaoh, and God is running Egypt through him. Now remember, God's plan in Genesis has always been to run the world through a man. Get this? God's plan in the Bible, in fact, if we don't get this, the Bible makes almost no sense. God's plan was to run the world through a man. Yes, he's God, okay, and he's never going to stop being God, never gives up being God. He is the ultimate emperor, if you like. But he is, his plan was always to have a man running things humanity on the throne. So Adam in the Garden of Eden is told to what? To have dominion, to rule over the fish, the birds, the animals. He's a king, if you like. Adam rebels. And God's promise to Abraham, his covenant promises to Abraham, was that kings would come from him, rulers would come from him, and that that these kings would rule over the nations. In Joseph, we get a little bit of fulfilment, don't we? He's, he's, he's ruling over, over Egypt. But, but it's not the end of the story. Again, we think on, we have to think on to Christ, don't we? Y- yes, as God, Jesus has always been king. He's always been the, the second person of the Trinity. He's always been the Lord over all, the emperor, if you like. But as man, he is given authority. Think of the end of Matthew's gospel. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
we thought about this in Sunday school a few weeks ago, but why does Jesus say given to me? You're God, Jesus. You've always had all rule and authority. Well, yes, as God he has, but now he is there as that last Adam, okay, the human through whom God is going to rule the world. And in that sense, he is very like Joseph. He is second only to, to God his father. Just as Joseph is second only to Pharaoh. Isaiah 11, one of the readings we often have at Christmas, uh, says this about this spirit-filled wise ruler. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. God's king, this human king, is going to be wise because the spirit is going to dwell on him. The Spirit brings wisdom. Ultimately, the universe, therefore, is in safe hands, because it's in Christ's hands. And I think that's why in the New Testament, on a couple of occasions, Paul prays that actually all of us will be filled with the Spirit of wisdom. Those two words, Spirit and wisdom, coming together. He prays it in Ephesians 1. He asks that the Lord, uh, the God, sorry, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, Ephesian Christians, a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. What does he go on to explain that means? What is a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Okay, you, you want a spirit of wisdom and revelation because Paul says it's a good thing. What is it? Well, Paul goes on to say it's, it's an understanding, a recognition that Christ is reigning on high. That he is sat at the right hand of the Father Almighty. That he is the greater Joseph, if you like. A truly spiritual wisdom lives their life in the light of the fact that actually there is a king on the throne now. That the world looks like it's in chaos, but it isn't. And so in Colossians, when he prays almost the same thing in Colossians 1, where he asks that the Colossians might be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he goes on to say, so as you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See the point? As Christians, we've been filled with the spirit of wisdom and that the wisest thing you can do on earth now is live in a manner worthy of pleasing the Lord Jesus. The reason that's so significant is because very often it won't please the other kings, okay, the rulers. Sometimes pleasing your boss and pleasing Jesus will just be a flat-out clash. And the wise thing to do is please Christ because he is the one in authority. So sometimes pleasing your parents and pleasing Jesus will be a clash. And the wise thing to do is please Christ. He is on the throne. In him are all the treasures of wisdom found. And he is sovereign. So, so Christians, we need to be patient and not grumble at his plans. Okay, you might be in the pit now. 13 years for Joseph. You might be in the pit. But if you, you share Christ's spirit, if you put your trust in him to rescue you, then you will join him in glory. So any suffering is worth it on the way there. Now, let's not grumble that he's not being fair with us. Uh, let's not fear that he's lost control. Uh, let's not get angry because we don't understand what he's doing. I think a, a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, when we, we looked at the baker and the butler, uh, I said we shouldn't ask the question, is God at work in my life? The reason we shouldn't ask the question, is God at work in my life, is because we know he's at work in our life. Rather, we should ask, what is God doing in my life? And let me nuance that this week. 
It's good to ask, what is God doing in my life? But sometimes the answer will be, I don't really know exactly. He hasn't promised to let us know every detail. Sometimes we just need to be patient. Trust that he is at work in his big plan of getting us home to glory, but we don't know the details. He is ruling. And he's ruling just as we close to bless. Uh, What does Joseph do? Well, he provides bread in years of famine. Verse 55 to 50, well, verse 46 to 57, but the key is verse 55. The nations come and, and the people come and they're starving and Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. He is the one who holds the bread of life. Grain, not just for Egypt, but actually verse 57, all the earth coming to him. All the earth comes to God's ruler. God's ruler is there to bless and feed the nations. I am the bread of life, says Christ. John 6, 48. Whoever eats of me, and he explains that eating as being believing, will have eternal life. That's why we live for him. That's why it's wise to live for him. Because only he can give eternal life. Many other power figures in your life, little pharaohs if you like, can give you short-term blessings, promotions, pleasures. But only Christ can give you eternal life. Only he is the bread that sustains for eternity. And so as we close, I just want to point us to Joseph's two sons. Do you see these? It seems strange. They're popped in the middle of the text. Verse 50. He has uh, these children, verse 51, Manasseh uh, and Ephraim. Manasseh basically means forgetful, forgetting. And Ephraim means fruitful, blessing. Joseph has two sons and he calls the first one forgetting, Manasseh, because I'm forgetting all the hardship I've been through. Now there's an irony, if you call your son forgetting, then for the rest of your life you're going to remember it, aren't you? Okay, every time you call him, hey, little forgetting, come here, little forgetting, come here. So he is, he is, I feel like he's deciding to remember to forget. That doesn't sound strange, but he's deciding to remember to forget the suffering he's been through. And he names the other one fruitful. Okay, lucky young brother. (laughs) Forgetting and fruitful. The blessing that God is now going to bring to me. That is the secret, I think, to the Christian life. Remembering to forget and looking forward to fruitfulness. We, we, we remember what we've been saved from. Famine, starvation, sin, death and judgment. If you forget what God should have done with you, if he left you as you were, well then you'll never truly rejoice in the fruitfulness to which he's called you. If you forget how bad, how wicked, how sinful we are, then we'll never really rejoice in the grace. The, the two sons point us both ways. They remind us, Joseph, and us of what we've left behind, what we've been saved from, and they point us forward to what we've been saved to, ultimately for us, heaven. And so we're going to come to the Lord's Supper and now as we sing, after we've sung rather, and it's going to do both those things. It reminds us of what we deserved, body broken, but also points us forward to what God is going to do, feed us, his son who came into the world, the bread of life, but ultimately was broken so that we might not be broken and rose to life to share his resurrection life with us so we might live forever. Live in light of God's king and only there will you find true wisdom. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Our Father, we praise you that Christ is on the throne and that he has given his life and that he might feed the world. 
Uh, We pray that you would pour that spirit of wisdom and revelation on us. Uh, Keep on filling us with your spirit, we pray, that we might know that Christ is Lord and that we might live wholeheartedly for him. This we ask in his name. Amen.